Hello, ladies and gentlemen. We are back with another episode of Quote Unquote with KK Health. This month, we had to delay recording of our podcast on wealth because one of our eminent speaker had to back off last minute due to certain family emergencies due to the second round of COVID pandemic that has hit our country. We hope to record the podcast sometime later next month. However, Continuing from our last podcast on the human edge, I have now got a very interesting personality, a very prominent author in the space of genomics. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to welcome Kevin Davies, who has been a part of the genomic journey. And let me just link some of the talk that we had on our last podcast. Dr. Marcus talked about mitochondria, which is part of the genome, and how adaptation and changes to the genome can lead to human resilience and can lead to humans actually living in very extreme environment, including the space, in his book that he has talked about in our last podcast. Continuing from there, I've got Kevin, who is the editor of CRISPR General, and he has recently written a book as well on the same topic. Kevin has been working in the space of genetics for last 30 years. He has written books such as The Thousand Dollar Genome, Cracking the, Unum, Cracking the Genome, Breakthrough, The Race for Breast Cancer Gene. Yes also co-authored books on DNA, and uh, Kevin is a Guggenheim Fellow. Kevin uh, passed out from the University of Oxford in uh, doing a master's in biochemistry, and later he completed his PhD in molecular genetics. In 2012, I had the privilege to invite Kevin over to our industry leading industry event called the Fiki Heel, and Kevin mesmerized the industry leaders here or with his thoughts on personalized medicine and genomics. So welcome, Kevin, uh, to the podcast. It's indeed a pleasure to have you back. KK, it's great to be here. Hello, everyone. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. So Kevin, you know, having written so many books, I would love to kind of talk about this uh, path-breaking technology called CRISPR. If you could take a few minutes talking about it, what was your motivation to even start a journal? And uh, you've kind of worked with a couple of Nobel laureates in this field uh, as well. <laughs> and then, you know, you've published a book as well. Yeah. I'm sure it's putting a lot many eggs in one basket and, you know, risking your career after having worked in, in, in some very fabulous, you know, organizations. Yeah. So I'm sure there is something very promising in this technology called CRISPR. I would love if you could outline it. Let, for of the, course. Thank the you. Audience. Thank you, KK. Um, as you mentioned, I've written a number of books, and the books have three things in common. They are they are all about genetics, which is the subject that I trained in. They are all stories about how genetics will transform medicine, human life, and society. So, for example, the race to identify the breast the breast cancer gene or to complete the human genome project. And third, I like stories where there is some human drama, there is competition, there are awards and prizes and rivalries and patent uh, disputes and so on. And um, it, turned, it occurred to me uh, a few years ago that the story of CRISPR, the development of this Nobel Prize winning technology, 
uh, and the many applications that this technology has to improve human life was the ideal story for my next book. So about four years ago, uh, two things happened. I, I uh, applied for a new job with a publisher in New York um, and brought with me the idea to launch a new scientific journal called simply the CRISPR journal. Um, and they love that idea. And so we launched that journal in 2018. It is going well, it is growing fast, and we are seeing many interesting papers submitted from researchers in India, as well as the rest of the world. So that's an exciting project in its own right. And you can find more at crisperjournal.com. But I also wanted to tell the bigger story, how CRISPR was identified, what it is, how it was discovered, and what we are using it for, and what some of the ethical controversies may be. And so that's led to the writing of my book, uh, Editing Humanity, which was published in the United States six months ago in October 2020, literally one day before the Nobel Prize was announced for the discovery of CRISPR genome editing, uh, the prize going to two great uh, female scientists, Jennifer Doudna, and Emmanuel Charpentier. The, what the, the first third of my book tells the story of how CRISPR was discovered and what it is. And very simply, CRISPR is a natural set of DNA sequences found in bacteria that provides them with a, a defense shield against viruses. Um, without CRISPR, life on this planet would probably not exist because every bacteria would be dead from, from viral assault. CRISPR is a way that bacteria are able to lock into their own DNA a little signature, a little memory card of a virus that has tried to infect them. And if years later or generations later, that same virus should attack the descendants of that bacteria, the sequence that was stored in the bacterial genome can be in a way activated and coupled with a, an enzyme that is a genetic scissors. And the little DNA sequence provides the homing beacon that tells this scissors, this enzyme, where to go, which sequence to attack and cut. So this was all worked out in the early 2000s, and it took another five years before Doudna and Charpentier collaborated in a famous paper published in 2012 that showed how we scientists could take this natural CRISPR system and tweak it and redesign it such that we could go in and edit any DNA sequence in principle in any organism, and that unleashed a biotechnology revolution. Uh, dozens of new companies have been founded in the last five or six years to commercialize uh, CRISPR for gene therapy, for agricultural purposes and other uses. And we are seeing the first successes of CRISPR as a wonder cure in the clinic to treat diseases, including sickle cell disease. So the future is extraordinarily exciting, and that's why I wanted to write the book. Excellent. Kevin, you talked about the virus and the bacteria. The biggest virus threatening the whole humankind is our SARS yes. coronavirus. 
how can this crispr technology really assist in ending this whole pandemic that on the type top of the mind of the people yes in india also some people uh, thought of actually using this for the diagnostic purposes to test patients if they are infected with the virus or not so there have been applications of uh, this technology also tried out in india but it has not gone far and wide yes if you could help make the understand what's the benefit of this technology this innovation for the current pandemic that we the world is going through just for the audience uh, information zika virus was also treated and eliminated by use of this same technology a couple of years back so obviously there is a promise of what uh, this technology crispr can do for the human kind at this point in time when the yeah. whole world is struggling yeah well crispr the system uh, of crispr that i've described that won the nobel prize um is one where we we use crispr to edit dna in other words we identify a, a disease let's say that is caused by a genetic mutation and with luck we can design a crispr experiment or a crispr trial to target that section of dna and make a very subtle but very precise replacement of the mutated letter in the genetic sequence with the the healthy uh, letter so most of your listeners know <clears throat> human dna or all dna is made up of four letters we abbreviate them as a c t and g and many genetic diseases are caused by simply one of those letters being misspelled so that's the promise of crispr and we can talk maybe later in the program about how crispr is showing such promise in the clinic but there are many different flavors of crispr that have been discovered in the last 8 or 9 years so we now are able to for example use crispr as a diagnostic tool so that if crispr is present in a in a test tube with with a tiny numbers of a particular virus let's say we can we can modify the the system so that we get a a signal we get a we can detect positively det- detect the presence of that virus so there is a lot of interest in applying crispr in two ways one as a diagnostic tool to make a very simple rapid cheap affordable diagnostic tests so that there's a lot of interest of course in allowing people with covid-19 to be able rather than have to go to a pharmacy or a clinic to be able to just take a kit go home and like a pregnancy test do a test in in your living room or in your bathroom and you know 20 minutes later you get a result so we're seeing great uh, progress and i think it may not be for this pandemic but maybe when the next time a virus um sweeps the planet i think crispr will play a very important role in uh, in the diagnostics of that disease which will help us get control of the pandemic much more effectively than we did this time in 2019 and 2020 we are all in india included learning from our mistakes and so this will be very important the other question that you touched on kk is the the therapeutic uh, question and that is since crispr is in simple terms a genetic scissors can we design crispr to 
go after the virus in our body. And so there's a lot of exciting basic research going on in that respect as well. It is not ready to be deployed in people because we have to make sure when you unleash a genetic scissors in the human body, you cannot afford for that scissors to be going off target and uh, tackling or uh, cutting DNA that is not the precise uh, target. So before we try this in human beings, we have to be sure that it is as close to 100% safe as possible. But again, I think in a few years time, when we are dealing with, I don't know, COVID-25 or whatever the next pandemic will be, um, I think CRISPR will, there will be companies offering um, new therapeutics uh, with CRISPR at the at the heart of the solution. So your, your, your question is a very, uh, very important one. Thank you. Kevin, I want to just roll back on uh, just to get the basics right, you yep. wrote about the $1,000 genome. Yes. And obviously, you know, at that point in time, when you wrote the book, the cost of doing a genome anal analysis was perhaps, I guess, a million dollars? It was uh, a little, it was coming down very fast. So the $1,000 right. genome was published 10 years ago in 2010, and the, the, the price uh, was dropping remarkably. And today, yes, uh, the, the cost of sequencing a human genome is no more really than $1,000. You might get charged a little bit more because the people doing the sequencing have to have a profit margin. But in terms of the raw materials and uh, the other basic costs involved, it's $1,000. And the Human Genome Project, when that was first completed 20 years ago, it was a couple of billion dollars. So it's right. one of the most extraordinary technological advances in human history. So, Kevin, affordability is one big issue in healthcare. Yeah. Any new technology. And obviously, for a country like India and the most populated countries in Asia, it's the price or the cost that would matter. And obviously, you had the future lenses to be able to predict that this technology, the gene sequencing, would happen in in thousand dollars. And you actually predicted and wrote a book about it. Yeah. And uh, it turned out to be true. I want to now look at your future glasses. You wear the future glasses. <laughs> and let's talk a little bit about you know, the CRISPR technology. Obviously, there, when these people got the two scientists got the Nobel laureate, the stock prices of of the companies on the Wall Street actually shot up. Yes, phenomenally, people started punting on it just because there were Nobel laureates who who have yeah. invested time and made this technology actually is proven. Now is the question of commercialization and widespread so that CRISPR can become a $1,000 technology. Yes. If you were to rewrite that book once again. Well, from you're right. I think the, the success and the validation of CRISPR afforded by the recognition by the Nobel Prize um, six months ago uh, was very important. But there was another story late last year in 2020 that I think was equally important and also contributed to the surge in the value, the market cap of the, the three, the four actually big CRISPR uh, gene editing companies, uh, CRISPR Therapeutics, Editas, Intellia, and another company called Beam Therapeutics, which we might talk about later. And the, the other advance that I'm referring to 
was work from CRISPR Therapeutics, working in partnership with another biotech company in Boston called Vertex, in which they published the results of their first clinical trial using CRISPR to treat sickle cell disease. Sickle cell disease is a terrible disease that affects millions of people across Africa and Asia, uh, for which there has been no, no cure, even though it's a genetic disease that we've understood for more than 50 years. It's often called the first molecular disease, as you know, KK. And CRISPR presented, CRISPR Therapeutics presented work published in the New England Journal of Medicine, so it doesn't get any better than that, showing that in their first patient, uh, a 30-something African-American woman, they had essentially cured her of sickle cell disease by taking uh, her bone marrow cells uh, using CRISPR to reactivate a dormant gene that could replace the faulty gene uh, that was affecting the function of her blood cells. And this worked beautifully. That's why the New England Journal, I think, was so excited to publish that work late last year. The problem, the difficulty, the challenge now is twofold. One is reproducing that result in many more patients so that this therapy can become approved by the FDA and by the other regulatory agencies in Europe and India and around the world. And then two, making this therapy, as you touched on, KK, making it sufficiently affordable that this can be given to people who many people in the communities affected by sickle cell disease, there is no way they will be able to afford a million dollars for a novel 21st century gene therapy, which is what this is. And unfortunately, given the hundreds of millions of dollars invested by these companies to get the licenses and do the research uh, and all the clinical testing that is necessary to prove this breakthrough therapy, they cannot just then sell the therapy for a few hundred dollars. They have to recoup their money to stay in business and to invest in the next CRISPR therapy for the next disease. So we are, it's a very difficult problem. But the problem is not with the CRISPR. The CRISPR technology is really One of the reasons the Nobel Prize has been awarded and people like me are writing books about this is that this technology has swept the world. There are thousands of researchers in India, in universities up and down the country using CRISPR for many different types of experiments because it is so straightforward to use. That is one of the amazing elements of this story. You do not need fancy million dollar pieces of lab equipment to run these experiments. You just need some some very readily available materials and reagents, and then the uh, innovation and the creativity and the skill of the, the researchers. But yeah, high school students can run CRISPR experiments. So I think we're just at the very beginning of the story of how CRISPR is going to transform gene uh, therapy for sickle cell disease, for blind genetic forms of blindness, for liver disease, for cancer, the list will get bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think five or 10 years from now, we may be talking about hearing about stories of companies on researchers using CRISPR to tackle Alzheimer's disease and more and more of the thousands of known uh, genetic diseases. Uh, there's even a company in Boston called Verve Therapeutics 
that is working on a form of uh, gene editing to tackle heart disease. So we are even beginning to move away from just tackling quote unquote simple genetic diseases caused by mutations in one gene to more complicated and more common diseases such as cardiovascular disease. So as you can tell from my voice, it's a very exciting time. Absolutely. And uh, I'm just hoping that the cost becomes viable as the number of people get treated, especially in this part of the world, which is very populous, that the trade-off between affordability as uh, the innovation goes to meet the need of the price for the market. Of course. Uh, at a price point where, you know, there is a point of inflection where it goes mass market. The good news so is So what do that you feel uh, this technology will become mainstream by, say, in another five years, ten years? I, no, like I what you predicted I, in, the, in, the, in your book earlier? I don't think we're going to be seeing $1,000 therapies in the next five or ten years, KK. I'm sorry to disappoint you. But there, there is good news. It's not... Uh, there are people in the United States recognize the problem that you have just articulated And last year, the National Institutes of Health launched a program together with the Gates Foundation, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, to explore ways that promising therapies such as this new program for sickle cell disease and thalassemia could be made more affordable for people in developing nations and populous countries such as India, um, who otherwise would not be able to afford it. So there, there is uh, work is underway to uh, because this is unsustainable. We cannot. I don't think the researchers working on these programs, working on this technology, want to see their medicines priced at one or two million dollars and available only to the the wealthiest or the luckiest uh, people living in in, uh, the United States. I mean, even before CRISPR, the first gene therapy that was approved in Europe had to be withdrawn because nobody could afford the price. So this is a problem that goes beyond CRISPR and extends to all breakthrough gene therapies. We have to find ways to get the price down. And we are in a, it's a catch-22 situation because of course these therapies are developed by publicly traded Wall Street biotech companies who want to help the lives of patients, but they are also bound to help the financial success of their shareholders. And sometimes these two things are not uh, in alignment. So, um, but that is the price, literally, that we have to pay for this biotech revolution to continue. And I don't know, I don't have an easy answer for how we uh, get around it. Kevin, I want to shift gears to problems of this part of the world. One of the issues that we are facing, and especially with weather change and all, is food security. Uh, We've got almost 1.4 billion mouths to feed. The area under agriculture is obviously reducing because there are a lot more people now who have to sustain on on the surface the limited supply of land that is there in in our country. I've worked with uh, the Prime Minister of India on on reform on agriculture and about 10 years back. India was good enough and came through with their first green revolution and white revolution. Obviously now is the time where 
our country also is challenged to innovate and bring out new technologies and plants and agriculture inputs where the productivity has to grow maybe almost hundredfold because our land mass is on sustaining agriculture is reducing. So we have more mouths to feed on a reduced land mass. And on several uh, crops, India is one of the leading producer with the highest productivity. So now the challenge for India and the agri-sector and agri-biotechnologists is how do we revolutionize this and how can CRISPR really contribute in, in increasing the yield on, on the agri-produce? I think CRISPR becomes a very important tool, an important weapon for researchers and farmers to increase the productivity of their crops uh, and providing means to make crops more resistant to drought, to pests, fungus, bacteria, the other kinds of blight and uh, and and pests. This is a problem in India and around the world. And I oh, in you... the in the during the pandemic, we had the the biggest locust attack coming from cross border. Yeah, yeah, and they destroyed a lot of crop in well, India. That's... That's yeah. That's I don't uh, CRISPR versus locusts. That's that's that sounds like a uh, sounds like a, a a movie should be made for that one. But I have. I guess we need some locust repair, uh, repellents or something into the plant. Yes, exactly. So I have a chapter in the book called Farm Aid that uh, explores this subject. It is not it is not a sexy subject because it is so much easier to talk about. Uh, look at a look at a patient with a terrible genetic disease, and and then talk about how we can cure this patient. It is harder to get the general public excited about the idea that one field of crop is uh, susceptible to a uh, a bacterius or bacteria or a, a fly or an insect, but this field over here, which looks exactly the same, is uh, resistant. But the beauty of CRISPR is that it gives this, the world of scientists more precision to make the very uh, subtle, precise genetic changes to engineer the plants to give them those uh, those superpowers, that that resistance, that shield, uh, that defense shield that uh, they need. This work is going on all over the world without CRISPR, but using. Uh, very basic, uh, inefficient technologies. I have a quote in the book from a very leading plant geneticist in America named Zach Lipman, who says, nature has not given us enough mutations in plants. If we are just reduced to looking at the naturally occurring mutations, then researchers have to spend years, years crossbreeding plants to try to find a a strain of rice or corn or whatever wheat that is gives them the desired properties. With CRISPR, we can use our scientific knowledge. We know which genes will confer the properties that we want. And CRISPR allows us to safely and precisely make that requisite change in that gene and leaving the rest of the genome completely untouched. And the only problem is that when people hear, some people hear about any tool being going in to play with the DNA um, of any organism, but including plants, they might get a little nervous. 
But we're not talking about GMOs here. This is not a case where we're taking a gene from an insect. That's or been a very big political issue in, in yeah. India. But this is why uh, we have to educate public and the, the ministers and the government. They are listening to your show, I know, on the safety and value of CRISPR. CRISPR God has given us the ability to the technological facility to develop these new tools. And it would be criminal if we are not allowed to apply these tools for a, a goal as noble as feeding the human population. And uh, but I'm not a this is a very rational. I'm a very rational person. And this is a rational idea because CRISPR is such a precise genetic tool we are not interfering with nature. We are simply speeding up what other methods can do, taking naturally occurring mutations and cross-breeding these different strains. So I hope that researchers in India and everywhere will be encouraged by the regulators and the governments of, our, of the world to um, explore this technology, because this is a crisis that we don't hear enough about. And even the woman who won the Nobel Prize last year, Jennifer Doudner, says that in the long run, the biggest impact of CRISPR for our species will be in agriculture and ag biotech. It's it's perhaps even more than the, the gene therapies that we've been talking about. Yeah. So in other words, basically what took generations of evolution of our plant and fauna could get accelerated by this using of this technology and then propagate it further so that the hardiest of and the, the most pest resistant strands of plants actually sustain further. Well, look at so many of the foods, the plants, the fruits and vegetables that we eat. Look, are they are unrecognizable from their ancestors from a few hundred years ago. And that's because we have been breeding and selecting and breeding and selecting. And CRISPR is designed to do the same thing. But now it's like uh, back to the future. It's like jumping in a time machine and, you know, skipping decades of these breeding experiments to get to the end result. Uh, it's like fast forwarding to the end of the film. Uh, so this is exciting. But this is not just about uh, the problem, obviously, in India is very, very severe. But in America, crops, uh, bananas, oranges, you know, the American consumer is at risk of uh, losing their fresh morning orange juice unless we use some of these new tools to save crops that are being devastated by different infections so this uh, i think this will this will come about i just want to take one counterclaim here as far as agriculture is concerned before the independence i was told that there were about i think 1000 varieties of rice i'm i'm lacking the number and because of whatever our agri-scientists have done, create a more resistant strand of, of rice, we have lost, I am told, almost 70 to 75% of the variants that existed almost 70 to 75 years back. How do you counter this, that by eliminating the wrong genes or, or the wrong genetic material, we are creating a much better genetic sources for the future, but we are losing out certain trends which existed in the yeah. past, where yeah. We, now we will probably call them extinct rice, I, I believe. 
Yeah. If somebody well, has I, seeds, he can probably grow it. And that used to be the tradition in India where they used to store those crop after crop and they could reuse that even after 10 years or 15 years as yes. a breeding material. But we have lost it all now. Well, I suspect maybe CRISPR is the way that we can restore those varieties. The pro the reason we have lost these this natural variation, KK, that you uh, talk about is because we've had to select and crossbreed for many, many, many generations. The beauty of now applying CRISPR in the plant world, in the crop world, is that when I design a CRISPR experiment, I'm not having to sacrifice all the other natural variety because I'm only interested in tweaking one specific gene to, or maybe it's a handful of genes, but I'm just targeting one specific pathway or one specific set of genes to confer the, the natural resistance that may prevent my crops from being destroyed by, by a parasite or a virus. So we leave the rest of the variety intact. So I can now apply CRISPR to all the uh, precious old stocks that may be in deep freeze somewhere as, a, as, a, as a, in an archive, in a repository. We can, re, we can potentially uh, begin to sow more of these crops back into the earth, providing we've, if we've used CRISPR to be able to target the one specific uh, weakness of the plant. So I see CRISPR again. Again, this is another argument, I think, why CRISPR it can be so beneficial and really is the only solution that we have going forward. You see, a lot of the genetic modification on our food has actually affected the taste. Some of the rice was aromatic. Some of it was, you know, had a different taste, a different blend of things, stickiness, different qualities. And we have lost it. Well, you see, uh, because but, of all this, you know, productivity increase of output. But if you know, kind of if gave you, it away. If you and your colleagues can tell tell me, the scientist, what what at the DNA level, what have we lost? What what genes got uh, modified inadvertently or lost when we were doing all of these crossbreeding experiments? What is the the old version? of the particular gene that would impart more flavor, more taste. And then guess what? Well, with CRISPR, I can restore that ancient variant, that ancient sequence that was accidentally lost because we were trying to save the crop. We can put it back. Voila, this is the best thing that could ever happen in creating the whole yes. diversity yes. of our plant population and different uh, breeds. Yes. Uh, which are now becoming uh, extinct. Yes. I mean, you know, there's a story in the book about the uh, the banana. Uh, we now all eat essentially the same strain breed of, of banana. It's called the Cavendish banana. Correct. And a, one of the experts in the fields traveled to uh, South America or, or Africa and uh, chanced upon an, an old, almost extinct version of the banana. <laughs> and he was so excited and he he bit into this banana for the first time, like savoring a glass of red wine. And he said, and his, re his review was, it just tasted more banana-y. So I, I hear you when you say rice has lost some of its uh, aroma yes. and, uh, and, and flavor. I hope we can get it back.
Well, Kevin, uh, let me switch some gears now. We talked about the food security and agribiotech. I want to talk a little bit, if you were to write your next book on the future and the application of CRISPR in uh, health sciences and different areas, when do you think we could probably see our surgeons doing genetic surgery instead of traditional surgery. Yes. And I think as a as an investor in healthcare facilities, I may probably have to change my operation theaters as well. <laughs> so do you think it may probably become a mainstream where actually instead of doing a localized uh, surgical intervention, we could probably do it at, 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 at a genetic level, which changes the whole DNA code and voila, your, your organs are completely rebalanced and re-energized. The, the danger when an exciting breakthrough <laughs> technology like CRISPR, anything to do with genetics, the, the, the danger when these things come along is that we rapidly blur the distinction between science fact and science fiction. We, we think of all the films and books we have read about new new worlds and colonizing new planets and um, Brave New World, Gattaca, and all of these kinds of films. And we immediately think, aha, CRISPR will bring us that scenario. So I'm happy to spend a few minutes trying to separate science fact from science fiction. What we are doing, I love, the, I love that you use the term genetic surgery. That's exactly what we're doing. One of the most famous papers in the, the, in the run-up to the Nobel Prize, one of the scientists, he didn't win the Nobel Prize, but he's come very, he came very close from Lithuania. Virgis Shiksnis is his name. He coined the term DNA surgery about eight or nine years ago. I love that term. So that's what CRISPR is doing. It is precise surgery, cut fix, repair on DNA. So that's exciting. And the ther the therapies that are currently being tested are looking at very, they're either looking at, at one particular tissue or one particular organ. So for sickle cell disease, we're trying to make a repair that will only impact red blood cells. We're not trying to, we're not touching the rest of the right. body. We're just trying to fix the function of red blood cells. Another therapy that is making progress in the clinic is for blindness, a genetic form of blindness, where we can inject behind into the back of the eye the CRISPR machinery that is delivered in a virus. And we are always being infected by viruses. So this is, in a way, quite normal, quite natural. The virus delivers CRISPR to the affected cells behind the retina, and we think is able to bring about a repair. Similarly, with some genetic forms of deafness, we might be able to make a very localized repair. Researchers are also exploring the use of CRISPR to tackle diseases such as muscular dystrophy or cystic fibrosis. Now, these are perhaps a little more challenging because to help a patient with spinal muscular atrophy or muscular dystrophy, you're going to have to transform millions of cells in in muscles uh, through the body. So delivering enough material and doing so safely, that becomes a bit more of a challenge. But in the next few years, I hope we hear uh, exciting results uh, in that realm as well. So, and there are thousands of genetic disease that affect the liver or the kidney or the lungs or the blood, and of course, the brain. And the, perhaps the biggest challenge, it's not designing the CRISPR experiment 
or the CRISPR tool tool set to tackle the the mutated DNA sequence. In a way, that's the easy part. The harder part is delivering that machinery safely without causing a a big immune flare up. This is a still a problem in gene therapy trials and has Correct. been for 20 years. So a lot of work is going on to explore the use of different novel delivery systems that can stealthily and safely deliver CRISPR to the cells in question, maybe not even using a virus. A virus is a very appealing vector. It's a shuttle uh, because viruses affect the human body. We, We are all carrying viruses as we speak. So it makes sense to try viruses and the viruses that are used today are much safer than the ones that were being deployed 20 years ago. And so you the, the side effects are much less. So that's very, very good news. But it, I think it is likely that in the next five or 10 years, we will start to see trials and therapies approved using non-viral delivery systems, sort of vesicles of lipids or fats that can just sort of be absorbed into cells and safely deliver their cargo without uh, causing any kind of immune reaction. So the prognosis, the future of CRISPR is very bright. There's a, uh, you mentioned Wall Street and uh, we've talked about some of the companies. In the last year or two, I could name another six companies that have all received huge investment, excision biotherapeutics, uh, Spotlight, Graphite, uh, Scribe, many more. So there's a new wave of gene editing companies being launched, uh, recruiting great scientists. And each of these bring their own slight variations to CRISPR or their own delivery methods. So we now have almost a dozen companies trying, exploring, researching, and investing in different, slightly different types of CRISPR for different diseases. They won't all succeed, maybe. Some of them may eventually uh, have to close or be absorbed by another company. But this is a very active and uh, healthy area of biotechnology investment at the moment. I want to talk about two very serious challenges to the healthcare system, more from a demographic point of view. One is in the next 30 years, a huge chunk of the global population would move towards a geriatric-based healthcare delivery and support. And I'm sure that avalanche is going to suck a lot of resources and costs to treat and sustain our geriatric population. So that's one area I wanted your thoughts of you know, what can we do to delay the aging or reverse the aging process? Or how can we work towards solutions that can lead to a much healthier geriatric population in the world? Yeah. The other point I I wanted to take was the multi-billion dollar oncology industry. So, you know, we have different types of cancers and different ways to treat radiology, surgically, chemically. And uh, it's again a mutation. And I'm sure, you know, how can we even eradicate cancer is the second challenge that I wanted to, for the healthcare system, that uh, we can leverage this technology. Yes. I don't have great answers on for either question, or, or I don't have positive answers. Uh, so you you mentioned, firstly, the geriatric, the, the aging 
population. CRISPR is not going to be a magic cure that will let us all live to 120 blessedly free from any debilitating disease. That That's simply not, not possible or not going to happen. Ironically, one of the most exciting papers in gene editing that was published in the last this year, this year, actually, 2021, came a few months ago using a form of gene editing called base editing, which is a newer system. And the researchers presented really exciting results treating a rare genetic form of premature aging. So there is a form of aging called progeria caused mm. by a specific mutation. And uh, the, the researchers were able to treat and repair this mutation in mice and the mice were able to live twice as long as their diseased counterparts. So that's exciting. I think the only, on the aging population, the only maybe relevant piece as far as CRISPR goes is that I mentioned earlier, a company in Boston called Verve Therapeutics, co-founded by a well-known cardiologist in the United States, named Sek Katharison, is trying to use CRISPR to tackle heart disease. And so there are genetic forms of heart disease, but many, it's a very common problem, of course, affecting millions of people. And it may be that years from now, we can bring about, we can use CRISPR to repair some of the genes that predispose to, uh, to heart disease. So that's uh, a possibility, but we will need more time to figure out how likely that is going to be. And as far as cancer goes, there are some early trials uh, using CRISPR for cancer, but cancer is, uh, as you know, KK, it's really thousands of different genetic Correct. diseases. We cannot just imagine one magic cure that will eradicate uh, cancer, sadly. So we have to take it one step at a time, one particular type of cancer at a time, and uh, and see where this goes. I think for your next program, you should invite uh, Siddhartha Mukherjee, the author of The Emperor of All Maladies. He's uh, an oncologist at Columbia University. I think he would be a great guest. And he has forgotten more about cancer research Absolutely. and treatment than I will ever know. So I will defer uh, that answer and uh, put you in touch with Siddhartha. Thank you so much. Kevin, I want to talk a little bit negative now. You know, this whole technology can do good to mankind, but there could be certain rogues who could even do negative outcomes to the mankind. As I understand, there was a Chinese scientist who actually created a twin babies and he was put behind bars and I'm not sure where he is. And there have been certain uh, negative false news about China developing a clone army to fight against India in the Himalayas with the extreme environment. So they are doing uh, using this technology to actually train their soldiers or harden their soldiers to face enemy on uh, on very adverse environments. So these are negative connotations and negative yep. hysteria being created out of nowhere or out of half sciences, I would call, or yep. half facts or half truth. How do you counteract uh, these sort of claims that have been made? And it's a huge issue of ethics as well, yes. I would say. Yes, uh, I spent a lot of time in the book Editing Humanity 
talking about ethics, and I think I do even briefly mention super soldiers, but I can uh, assure your audience any reports or rumors of clone armies uh, in the Himalayas, I think we can safely say that is complete and utter nonsense. That will never happen. So uh, that's some good news anyway. But I, I'm glad you brought up the uh, the Chinese scientist uh, He Jiankui, because this is an important, it's an important history lesson, and it has galvanized the scientific community to address a very important question regarding the ethics of gene editing. So KK, up until now, everything we've been talking about has been the, uh, the perfectly normal or safe application of CRISPR in living patients, in adults, or maybe sometimes in children where we are just applying it into the body to effect a repair in the blood or the liver or the eye, something like that. But He Jiankui did something very diff quite different. He introduced CRISPR into a human embryo so that the gene edits that he made in that embryo would become present in every cell of the resulting child and would, in principle, be then passed down to future generations. This is playing God. And nobody, no rational scientist was ready to tell their fellow, their colleagues, that we were ready to do, to attempt to do this sort of experiment. But He Jiankui, I will call him JK, JK decided rashly and sadly to uh, secretly pursue these experiments only telling or confiding in a very small number of scientists. And one of the tragedies of the story is that he did confide in maybe half a dozen American scientists, and all of them respected his request for confidentiality and did not uh, raise the alarm with any of the authorities. So that is a, a, a that was a missed opportunity. The twins were born two and a half years ago in November 2018, and when this story broke, there was a conference in Hong Kong where JK released these results. He also released a series of YouTube videos announcing the births of these gene-edited babies. There was uproar. There was an international outcry. How could you do this? Why did you do this? It turned out he felt he had reasons to do it. He was trying to engineer the DNA of these twins that they would be resistant to HIV. But the sad, one of the sad ironies of this story is that there are medical procedures that have nothing to do with gene editing that could have produced this outcome. He didn't need to resort to gene editing to try to bring this about. And unfortunately, JK was trying to, I think, become famous, become a celebrity, become a scientific superstar who would be credited with doing this brave new experiment. And instead, the rest of the scientific community condemned him. And even the Chinese authorities put him under house arrest. And about a year later, he was sentenced to three years in jail. I believe he is still in jail. We know nothing about the health of these twins. Their identities remain a secret. And there are many scientists who would really like to uh, help these babies, uh, these children, uh, to give them uh, checkups and make sure that the, the DNA edits that were performed have not resulted in any unfortunate uh, side effects. But uh, we, we, we simply do. I hope those studies are being conducted by the Chinese authorities, but we simply 
uh, do not know what's going on. Uh, in the aftermath of that story, a major report was commissioned and published last year by the National Academies of Sciences in America and the Royal Society of the UK, in which they explored and looked into this question in great detail. Under what circumstances might we condone the use of gene editing in human embryos? And they said the, the scenarios are very, very small and very specific. It would only be for serious genetic diseases, like sickle cell disease, in cases where there were no other medical alternatives. So, for example, in sickle cell disease, if, I, if a patient with sickle cell disease wants to ensure that, wants to have biological children, and wants to ensure that the, the children are healthy when born, he or she can undergo a process called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. So we do IVF, in vitro fertilization. Right. We produce the embryos in the clinic, and then we take a little DNA sample from each embryo and analyze the DNA to decide which embryos are healthy and which carry uh, the, the faulty gene. And then we will only implant the healthy embryos. So this is a very common procedure used in many different countries right now. But there may be circumstances where this is not available to couples. For example, if both mum and dad, mother and uh, man and woman who want to have a biological child, if both carry two copies of, say, the sickle cell gene, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis will not be available because there will be no healthy embryos at this gene sequence to select for. So gene editing is the only way you could uh, proceed. But the number of, I, I sometimes joke, it's not a funny story, but more people were involved in the research and the writing of this report than couples that will actually uh, benefit from this particular frame of thinking in the future. But first, we have to make sure, even if this is to go ahead, we have to make sure that CRISPR is safely done in embryos. JK was not able to control the process when he tried the, the experiment two, two or three years ago. And uh, other investigators have since confirmed that CRISPR seems to, it is difficult to control in human embryos. So before anybody starts thinking about any application of this, they would have to prove that the method can be uh, harnessed and performed as safely as we think it can in adult patients. And so many more years of work, I think, will be needed to cross that very first step before we start thinking about uh, other types of genetic modification in human embryos. I met the scientist who was who made Dolly the sheep long, long back. Ian Wilmot. Yes. And he was in Bangalore and he visited and met, a, met me as well. I guess this is to use this on humans or trial out in humans. You should first do the test tube baby experiment on animals to see, you know, how are they evolving before we can actually move it and do it do these sort of experiments that the Chinese JK scientists did on the embryos. We know that S-tube babies are now the norm yep. as part of IVF, but that is for those who are not able to produce babies because of other uh, biological or other reasons. Yep. Rather than try to modify babies, the genetic code for the sake of a test tube baby. I think that leads us to a lot of issues of how do we regulate this in the future as well. Yes, I want to stress that 
99.9% of the clinics that will perform this pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, they are doing so to for the simple purpose of preventing that couple from having a child with a serious, potentially fatal genetic disease. That is what these clinics were set up to do. But in researching the book, I did encounter one clinic in New York that was offering this technique, PGD, for eye color. And I have a problem with this. I mean, this is, uh, so now we are, the, the clinic was saying, if you wish to have a child with green eyes or blue eyes, we can perform this IVF procedure, do the appropriate genetic test, and then we will only implant the embryos that will give the desired outcome. That That is only being done for couples who can afford the tens of thousands of dollars to follow that uh, process. But I take a dim view of that, and I, I tend to think it probably shouldn't even be allowed. But it does begin to open the question of a, a slippery slope. And, you know, what if couples now want to have perform PGD or genetic selection for other traits. This often comes up. Now we get to talk about designer babies and things of this sort. The Much of this now veers into science fiction because the, one of the first things that people talk about is intelligence. Well, what if I can edit some genes to make my, to ensure that my, my child, my future child has an IQ of 160 or higher? Well, if we knew which genes to edit, then maybe this would be a, a discussion worth having, but we simply don't. And the, to try to play with a trait such as intelligence, common sense tells you that you would have to change or modify hundreds, if not thousands of genes. We don't even know really where to start in this process. So that is not, this is not a question that is going to uh, impact gene editing, but there, it does impact the, 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 the genetic testing field. And there is a clinic in uh, America, just outside New York, called Genomic Prediction, which is offering tests for couples on their embryos, which does look at intellectual ability. I'm using okay. a complicated... in the womb. <laughs> well, no, we're, so we're talking about before the womb. <laughs> Oh, so okay. we're talking about in vitro embryos, in vitro fertilized embryos, and this is very controversial, but it is available. And if the couples can look at the genetic testing of their embryos, uh, and the clinic will report whether the embryo has a higher or lower risk of many common diseases, diabetes, heart disease, and intellectual disability is also on the list. And the company is makes it very clear or the founder of the company, to be precise, uh, says to us, um, you know, I can tell you which embryo is going to potentially be of greater intellectual ability. Um, I'm not offering that, that result to our clients at the moment because society is not ready to have that conversation. But the, the science is there, he claims. And uh, he says that, you know, if, if 10 years from now, a country, maybe a country in Southeast Asia, should come to us and say, we want to offer this for our citizens. He stands ready, potentially, to offer that service. So this is, you know, this is, this is a conversation that we may really need to have in the future, in the near future. This is nothing, again, I stress, nothing to do with CRISPR. This is simply using the latest 
ability to survey the genome, as we were talking about earlier, to yeah. do our quick, rapid, cheap whole genome sequence, and then computationally analyze all of those three billion letters of DNA in our genome. And some some scientists believe that they can impute the future intelligence of the child based on some of the variants that they unlock in that process. So, yep, we're going to have many more episodes of your podcast, KK, devoted to this uh, fascinating question in the years ahead. I have one last question uh, before I take a few personal questions for our audience as well. Yes. In India, this whole trend of umbilical cord uh, banking, blood banking has started, and I'm sure there are millions such bank, frozen bank blood uh, already there. And the whole thing uh, that this has been marketed in this part of the world is it's your insurance for your future. So we have a huge opportunity going into millions of such genetic material at the time of birth, which has been frozen and available for use on, on the person who has, or, who has donated or, or has frozen it. Yes. How far do you see this is going to be used if this technology matures, maybe 10 years, 15 years, when uh, the people who have actually frozen their uh, umbilical cord yes. uh, blood yes. cell can actually do something about it? Or is just a, it's just a safe deposit locker? Uh, not nothing going to happen. I, I'm a little I'm a little skeptical, KK, to be honest. But this is not, this is not a subject I have really investigated. It is it was not part of my research for editing humanity. Um, and that's the difficulty: is you you offer the, you dangle the promise of future cures or or hope for your uh, adult body in decline, but it takes. 20, 30, 40 years to even begin to do that experiment. And I don't know that the results have even been reported yet. So um, I think you really need to do your research uh, before you invest in one of these uh, one of these services. Um, so I, um, I haven't done it. I don't know anybody who has. I'm, I'm pretty skeptical. Great. Personal question, Kevin, you have had a fabulous 30 years career. There are a lot of budding scientists and researchers in India. What is the career advice that you like to give them who can probably be, you know, you've written books, you've written so much thought leadership that you have imparted in your career. Yes. How can they benefit from your experience? This is a message for the young budding scientists in our country who well, may want to emulate and may want to follow your footsteps. That's a parting comment from you. Thank you so much. Uh, the irony is that the OKK, that the only reason I started writing books is because I wasn't very good as a, a bench scientist. <laughs> that was my dream growing up, was to become uh, the professor of a famous university and giving lectures around the world on my lab's brilliant science. And I got my PhD and then I went to Boston to do my postdoctoral work. So up until that point, everything uh, in my career had been going as planned. And then I hit a brick wall. I, I don't think I picked the right lab. It wasn't doing the work that I was most interested in. And so my move into science journalism and science publishing was a desperate reaching out for a lifeline to save my career because it wasn't going to succeed uh, as, a, as a medical researcher. And I was lucky uh, to join the staff of Nature magazine 
and launch a journal called Nature Genetics and then uh, start writing writing some books for fun because I love science and I love the, as we've discussed in this podcast, the importance of educating and communicating what the scientists are doing in, locked away in their laboratories and their companies to the broader public who they are trying to assist through cures and through better crops and so on. So that being a communicator, as such as you are doing through your podcast, is a very important, a very important role. For budding scientists, I would say, follow your heart. Make sure that you are working on questions and problems that you are passionate about. Doing research should be a passion, not a job. It, it <laughs> takes long hours. It takes commitment. It makes takes sacrifices. So you should be making sure that you are doing something. You are asking, you are trying to answer questions that you simply have to know the answer to. I would also say, and I did not do this well as a student, talk, confide in your colleagues and friends. Ask them if they think you're making the right move. That's also important because you may get advice from a supervisor or a colleague or a friend. They may ask you questions that force you to look at yourself and make sure your, 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 your career uh, is going on the right path. I moved to America, and I think, obviously, this is a very popular move for many aspiring scientists from India and China and Europe. And I think if you have that opportunity, it is one well worth taking. Because if you move and do a postdoctoral, a grad, a PhD or a postdoctoral uh, fellowship at a university in America, you will meet scientists from around the world you will get access to the best uh, resources and some of the greatest minds. And I think you will, your horizons will be opened. And whatever you bring back to India from your spell there will do wonders for your career and the, the, the work of the people around you. So uh, whether you stay in America or Europe for two years or three years or six years, that is usually a good, uh, a, 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 a tremendously useful experience. And at that point you can decide, do I want to stay in research? Do I want to become a teacher? Do I want to become a writer? I have no regrets now about moving into working at a journal like Nature or Cell or Science or one of the thousands of good scientific journals, it provided me a way to stay in science, talking to people like you and fellow scientists around the world, but without the drudgery of having to go back to the lab at five o'clock in the morning to stand in the cold room to do another experiment that probably wasn't going to work. So I would much rather be reading papers and manuscripts from great scientists submitting, trying to get published in my journal, that seemed a much more fun way to spend my days than trying to run gels and uh, uh, and do experiments that uh, that might not work. So, but any for any young scientist today, the future that is the tools that they now have at their disposal by CRISPR and genome sequencing, it just becomes, you can now do things that are almost science fiction. And so it's a great time for any young scientists. And I wish your audience uh, all the success going forward. 
the last part was also for my daughter she's ah. just completing her class 12 and she wants to do a specialization in biotech and artificial intelligence so oh, she wow. would be coming for her undergrad there well i i will make sure the paperback version of editing humanity is published in the next 2 weeks here in the united states uh, i hope eventually it will be published in india too if any publishers are listening please contact us but uh, i will make sure that uh, i send you a copy you can uh, dedicate it to her thank you so much uh, kevin for spending time with us as always you had uh, really enchanted the audience when you spoke at the national event of fiki heel in 2012 and it was a real engrossing conversation with you i really appreciate spending the time and talking to us and in a layman language communicating what this new technology crispr is all about uh, before i let you go i just would like to make a few announcement i like to thank our team sponsors and our production team for making it possible to even have this podcast during our lockdown and our second phase of uh, the pandemic so really appreciate putting the whole logistics uh, together we will come back with our next podcast early next month and also bring back uh, the speaker that we missed out this month sometime in the next month as well a word of advice please stay safe it's always to be safe then be sorry thank you so much and have a nice day thank you kk thank you for having me on quote unquote and yes please stay safe everybody bye for now 